Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Hey, Evan. Uh, it is Friday. It is the end of a long week. I am very excited for the weekend and upcoming fall. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I mean, you've had a busy week stepping into an interim director role outside of your normal comfort zone. It's 6.30. Well, now it's 6.41 on the West Coast. So, I mean, you've been up and going for probably a bit, but I am um, downing coffee. Hopefully, we don't have to take a quick break during this recording. So, um, can you believe it? We're on episode 17, Automation in Action already. It's wild. It's uh, coming to a soon conclusion of season two. So that's fun. Um, we're starting to even get topics ready for season three. I also have two coffees here. I have an iced and a hot. So I'm ready for, for today's action. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I know um, we're going to do a quick shameless plug to all you listeners. Daniel and I are looking for new topics for season three, like you said, but we're also looking for new guests. So if you have a topic, want to come and talk about what your organization's doing that's fun and cool, or if you're an early careerist and you want to talk about, you know, what you're road mapping out and where how you want to grow as an individual, we're happy to chat with you as well. So reach out to us um, via LinkedIn or our email and we will uh, take it from there. Should we get ready to jump into this uh, episode, Daniel? Yeah. To start out, I'll introduce our first guest today. Uh, this is we're jumping into the hot topic segments. Uh, it is football Saturday, so I feel like I need to say that she graduated from the Ohio State University and started her career in 2003, uh, holding various roles within the revenue cycle for 18 years before joining Allegheny Health, Health Network as the VP of Revenue Cycle. Um, oversight in hospital and professional services, uh, has some epic background as well as a certified PB admin and claims builder. Uh, thanks, Shonda, for joining us this morning. Hi, thank you for having me. All right. Well, I don't think our second guest really needs a lot of introduction. I think this is their third time on the podcast now, um, and we've repeated a few episodes, so we'll give her, maybe it's her fourth because of that. <laughs> um, she, uh, is an expert in project management and implementation. She leads our client success division here at Wilshire. Uh, background in HIM coding in the mid-cycle, we pretty much lean on her for all HIM and coding major projects and keeping up in the industry. Um, she's been partnering with AHN for several years now, I think at least three, um, and, and helping them out with implementation. So welcome back, Jen. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. We are happy to have you. Well, we're so glad to have you both actually today to join us on this journey that we've been on this year around AI and machine learning. Um, it's been a wild ride. Yeah, and for today's episode, automation and action, uh, we'll start off with doing just like a little bit of recap and talking about what we've talked about this season. So we had colleagues on from Claim Capital where we discussed just like general fears about AI. And then we had Chris from Janus Health join to talk about generative AI and some of the cool technology there. We've had Adeo Technologies as well for the coding world around machine learning and AI. So AI, 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 uh, I need to get like a tattoo or something just to uh, <laughs> show my interest, show my my loyalty. But um, yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about the good things and some of the fears, but let's expand on that today. 
Well, and I think our expansion today is definitely around we're bringing in a location where all of our other conversations have been with the technology side of it. Um, you know, we're happy to have both of you guys here to get your perspective of, you know, how's operations doing this in real life? Um, so what are some of the fears that you guys are starting to tackle? Just fear, fears in general around AI or even exploring that with your leaders? So naturally speaking, um, you know, folks are always fearful that we're going to replace them with robots, right? I'm going to lose my job. I'm not valuable here. Um, those kinds of concerns. And, you know, my my philosophy on it has been to just be very honest about automation and try to um, engage them in the adoption of it. So I like to say, we're doing this, but we want your help. You're going to have a job here. There's plenty of work to do. We all know that, right? So you're you're guaranteed to retain a meaningful role within our organization, um, and we want your engagement and your help. Help us identify things that are redundant that you do over and over and over again. And uh, you know, it always comes to mixed reviews, right? But I think the most important thing is just to be very upfront and honest and direct about your intention but try to engage them in that. So um, that's that's just how I approach it. I don't know if it's you know good, bad, or, or in between, but I think being honest that we are going to do this, we want your help, um, at least lets them know that they're valuable to the process. I agree. As we're trying to implement some of these solutions, I think that people people are throwing and have been for the past, what, three years, throwing around AI and automation in very generic terms. Mm -hmm. And they act like it's going to be this silver bullet and it's going to be wonderful and solve all the world's problems. But when you're actually implementing some of these solutions and you're down in the details, um, you see the kind of effort that goes in behind trying to set it up, making sure it's right. You know, with my HIM hat on, I always worry about sending payers more information than is necessary for payment. So I feel very strongly about not sending the, you know, my entire visit, if they really just want to see my pathology results, because they're checking it, you know, for a charge that the pathologist dropped. And so like, you know, walking that line of trying to make it automated, trying to take the um, busy work out of you know, a human's hands so that they can concentrate on more complex problems, because like Shonda said, there is no uh, lack of work in our work queues, right? And so, but also like, you know, making it easy, but also not going overboard. And the implementation of it is a lot more detailed and nuanced than people would have you believe, I think. Yeah, I think we're always walking that fine line, right, of between what's what's needed and what's regulatorily required, um, the nice to have versus the uh, want it all. So I know um, as we get into the second segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about areas of opportunities that kind of like what you guys are actually doing and walking that fine line with your teams a little bit more. Um, but what are what are you guys exploring or what are your teams engaging in in other ways of automation or even like double utilizing automation, maybe not to do their work, but to do some of the checking or to do some of the evaluation or um, just kind of out there? What are you exploring in general? Jen, go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I, I before the, the podcast started that I don't have a lot of time to do a lot of reading on things that we're not actually doing right now. But, <laughs> um, 
not out there on the weekends reading up on the latest and greatest, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think one of the things that that I'm kind of watching is, you know, downgrades and take backs are such a huge part of what you deal with from the provider or healthcare system um, side right now. And it can be very frustrating. And some days it feels like a fight. Um, and so there are a lot of interesting things going on. Um, in terms of, you know, people using different software and then, you know, comparing DRGs and saying, no, well, our software got this DRG, but your software got this. And what are the algorithms or the nosology behind that? Um, I also, I worry a little bit about the the data mining of sending, you know, way, too, as I said before, way too much information over to, to payers. And we don't know what the result of that is going to be in a couple of years. Like I love the the idea of taking care of patients better because the information is there for Medicare risk adjustment and HEDIS quality. Um, I love that, but do we know how that information is going to be used yet? I mean, I know it's not a lot different than someone from that organization or that payer coming in to you know, one of our facilities and looking at my longitudinal medical records for the past three years but now they have that information at their fingertips and they have a copy of it, not just looking at it in the facility. So I, I worry a little bit about what what's going to transpire in the next couple of years with all of that. I mean, there are good things, but I'm sure there will be some negative things as well. One issue that we're um, um, experiencing uh, and is ED downgrades. So I think a lot of organizations um, have this issue, the Optum Analyzer, the payers are adopting, and we are work, we are working towards automating our appeals um, around um, that type of denial. Uh, we're looking at um, automating some coding. Um, we have our imaging and radiology services outsourced right now, and our intention in the future is to bring it in-house so that we're all on Epic together, but we didn't have any automated coding solution for simple um, for simple type um, services. So we are working on a pilot right now with a vendor. It's been very successful, and uh, we are looking to fully implement and roll that out in the future. So that's something that we're looking at. And then one more thing that I'll mention um, is our our what we call our E2 department. They have software that they can put on folks' computers, individual user computers, and try to find those redundant um, um, activities or transactions that folks are taking within their workflows. We haven't we haven't actually done that in RevCycle yet. I know that that department has worked, I think, with HR and maybe um, um, supply chain, but. That's something that we're looking at doing as well, because like I mentioned earlier, we do want folks to engage with us. We do want them to tell us, you know, where they see opportunities. But sometimes when your head's down or in your day to day, something that you've done for years, it doesn't even like click that it's something that they should, you know, speak up about. It's just ingrained in what they do. So we're going to maybe look at that solution to um, to try to tease some of that out. Again, going back to the fear, you know, is somebody watching what I'm doing? And that's absolutely not the intent. And there's, um, you know, there's some really great messaging around that so that folks feel comfortable. It's fully voluntary, um, but to help us with some of those types of thing, type of um, automations as well. Maybe to put a, a little bit different spin on this, and this probably, Shauna and Evan, this is probably a question relevant for both of you. 
we're talking about, like, I think Jen said, it's a silver bullet. These are the golden goose. These vendors come in, they're like, here's a solution. Is the sales cycle and like the ROI that these folks are presenting similar to like bringing on other vendors? Like, what does that, what does that process look like? And I know like there's like an overall just like belt, like we're, 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 we're shorting our budgets a little bit. And so these are oftentimes expensive solutions. And I'm curious, just like what your both experiences with like engaging with these folks who are like, here's this AI tool or here's this new tool. that's going to make everything better. Um, and are they able to like put ROI in the same context? Well, you know, it varies from vendor to vendor. Some are very expensive, some are less expensive, right? And so some of them, I won't mention any names, it's just like eye-popping how much it costs, right? Um, but then you have other solutions. Uh, it's a, somebody that you mentioned earlier that come in and, you know, you're like, they really take your real life information, kind of test it out and give you the ROI. And um so those are, of course, of more interest to me specifically when I'm looking at my budget, right? Um, and then the other thing to mention is, you know, there's software that you can obviously deploy in-house where you have folks build out your automation for you, which is much less expensive. So if you have that expertise, you can utilize that as well. So I am not always sold on the ROI presentations um, and not always a huge supporter of some of it. And, and the vendor space, but some others, you know, they come in and they're like, hey, this is a lot less, costs a lot less, and we can do a lot more. And, you know, sometimes they're, they, they, they sell you on it and, and it's good. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think it's also looking at it like what's the contingency component, right? Like I am a strong proponent, even in, in when I'm doing interim work and I, you know, with my current client, I'm, I'm, I think I have like six RFIs out there right now that I'm reviewing and looking at. But even some of them, I'm like, no, what's the contingency base? Like if I'm looking at a, a authorization component and notification of admission, what's the risk they're going to take there? If their system goes down, doesn't do it. Yeah, they have SLAs and that's all great. But that doesn't mean that I'm not still going to get my organization is still not going to get the denial factor or be financially impacted if their system goes down. So what's the financial risk that I want them to take? That's what I'm looking for with a vendor. Um, and then in the... AI or automation or machine learning space, how much of it are you going to give me for free? So like, are all my upgrades going to be free? Is the refinement of the rules when the rule breaks or the health plan integrates something new that's going to actually shut down the rule from being able to work or you need to update the bot because of the new regulations that have come out, like how much of that is maintenance or how much of that is going to cost us in the long run? I think those are things that we're all having to explore. Um, and then at the end of the day, it really comes down to, are you, are you able to put your solution in or take my historical data and run it and then show me what what I'm actually going to get and let me process a few of those claims, reprocess a few of those claims that way and see if I'm actually going to get it. So a pilot phase. And there are a few, there are a few AI vendors out there because they're trying to get break into the market big time that are offering kind of those um, depending on the different spaces that that like free trial basis of, of things. I know of a couple coding vendors that have just presented to um, my clients and they're like, one of them's like, yeah, we'll do we'll do 90 days for free after we'll implement and then do 90 days for free to see if it works. And if not, then you guys back it out and it's fine. So I, I do think that, you know, there are those um, elements out there that people can, uh, they're trying to break in. Mm -hmm. But 
you also want the ability to self-control too in some way. So can you update a bot? And and there are a few out there that are like, hey, we'll teach your team how to build the rules, build the bot engines. And um, then you become your own maintenance group on that. And if you want to explore and blow it up even more, then they come in with the team to help you recreate some additional items. And then your team does the maintenance portion of it. So, I think my biggest question is always what's the IT lift, right? Because I'm sure that we are not alone in the fact that our IT team is very streamlined and uh, short-staffed right now. And so, you know, if we are going to need to have our IT team involved, I mean, we're probably, and it's a project that we haven't talked about yet, we're probably looking six, nine, 12 months out as far as scheduling goes. And so it's not an immediate plug and play thing. So the things that are the most attractive to me, as Shonda said, are the things that are, you know, in-house that with, I mean, obviously it's time and energy, but that we can build ourselves in our, in our EMR, which is epic. Um, or the things that a third-party vendor comes in and says, listen, all you have to do is set up this one feed for us. And then we will take it from there. We don't need to engage your IT team. It's not 17 interfaces. It's not 14 different clarity dumps of data, like that kind of stuff. Like how do we make it easier on IT? But it is a contract. So yeah. yep. <laughs> it could take six, nine, 12 months too, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Or it could be like overnight and you weren't ready to implement it. You needed it. You, you were relying on that contract phase to drag it out a little bit into the next <laughs> fiscal year. But nope, sure enough, it's hitting now. <laughs> All right, uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you ready to unlock the full potential of your medical coding team? Look no further than Adeo Technologies, the leading provider of medical coding productivity solutions. With Adeo's Gemini Solution Suite, medical coders are empowered and complemented with cutting edge tools and technologies. The Gemini Coder platform, Gemini AutoCode, and Gemini Coding Assist solutions work seamlessly together, creating efficiency and improving accuracy in medical coding. Say goodbye to tedious manual processes, cheat sheets, and memorization and embrace the power of workflow improvements, artificial intelligence, and predictive coding. At Adeo, we believe in the collaboration between medical coders and artificial intelligence to create coding capacity that makes human coders more valuable to their healthcare organizations. Visit our website at www.adeo-tech.com. It's adeo-tech.com to learn why we love coders and how Adeo Technologies is transforming medical coding productivity one claim at a time. Fine Medical serves a growing base of more than 800 active hospitals and health systems nationwide. Their best practices are hardwired through technology solutions, proven to help hospitals achieve sustainable top performance. Their well-published results include improving financial performance, physician and staff alignment, patient experience, compliance, and patient safety and quality measures. Learn more at findmedical.com. That's V-Y-N-E medical.com. And we're back. All right. Uh, so we're going to move into the next segment uh, where we'll discuss our industry trends, out-of-the-box ideas, and topics to get you thinking. Uh, so again, our topic today, automation and action. Uh, Shonda, in chatting about just like upcoming projects that you're doing and automation projects, we've talked a lot about in-house and like what can we do um, within our EMR, within Epic, within our project teams. And I'm curious of that list, 
of automation projects that you're working on? What are the most the, the most exciting things for you right now? Well, the most uh, one of the most exciting projects um, that we're working on at AHN is implementing uh, mind chart messaging to the patient for high volume denials, um, the highest being coordination of benefits. So coordination of benefits denial can mean a variety of things, but uh, typically, and the ones that we need um, the most patient engagement with are when you have to update your insurance uh, for your um, your coordination of benefits, okay? So we can't, as a revenue cycle team, we can't really do much about that. We're relying on the patient to update their, uh, update the payer. So, and there, I mean, there are thousands of these that come in, right? So a lot of the, epi- a lot of the automation, excuse me, does occur in Epic, which I'm always Epic first on automation, right? Um, Jen just mentioned using um, our tools that we have in-house that, are not as costly. Uh, we don't have to, you know, drag out for a long time. So what happens in the, what we're working on is when the patient or when the, excuse me, when the payer denies the claim for coordination of benefits, the denial comes in post in the system. We write rules around the payer and the denial type or our RMC code. And then that kicks off um, one of three things, right? So the first thing would be, okay, if the patient has an active my chart, um, send a message and it's like a canned message to the patient directly. And then from there, they can respond and it goes to a pool within Epic and the um, end user can then interact with the patient. You can, you know, talk via chat basically. And it's really nice because the patient can then, if it's maybe um, an insurance update, maybe they don't have that insurance anymore and they need to update it. They can take a picture of their insurance card, upload it, and then we can um, add it to the patient's chart and update the insurance and get everything built out. So it's a nice option, especially for folks that are more tech savvy, right? Um, myself, that would be the option that I like to take. So I, like, I have my phone in my hand all the time, right? So I just want to update things and send it on its way. So if the patient doesn't have an active mind chart, then our next option would be to email the patient and say, hey, can you, you know, we need you to engage with your insurance company. Can you, you know, work with them and let us know you know what's going on. And then the third option, if we don't have an active my chart, we don't have an email address, the third option then would be to send an automated letter, send it via snail mail, um, which I know when I get those letters, they go in the trash can, especially if it's like, you owe us $5,000 if you don't respond, whatever, <laughs> you know? So that's why we want, you know, we have this hierarchy, you know, how we want to connect with the patients. Now, I'm not saying that the letter is not valuable because it is for folks who, you know, maybe aren't as tech savvy. So we need that option to be in play and you can fully automate this. And then once the action is taken, it defers the, um, the denial in a work queue and it's a no touch process. And when you have thousands of these kind of denials a month, literally thousands for millions of dollars, it adds up quickly, right? It's, there's a lot of time and effort. So if you can automate that first pass, it's real. It's really a great win for your organization. The other thing that I want to just plug quickly is that at AHN, we're working on integrating um, our PB and HB hospital and professional billing teams so that it's just one hit to the patient, right? One connection, one touch. 
um, you know, historically for a lot of organizations um, and still today, those teams are completely separate. They're doing their own things and the patient's getting hit up on both sides. So we're centralizing and are integrating those teams. And then we want to combine that, that automation. That's kind of second phase. Right now we're on the first phase of just getting the automation up and going running, um, which as Jen said, you know, it could take six, nine, 12 months, depending on resources and, and those sorts of things. But it's um it's a really neat way I think to um, encourage patient engagement and to reduce the touches on and this work is redundant it really is because there's not much we can do other than say please help us. So Shonda, are you guys looking for second touch? So let's say patient doesn't respond to any of your outreaches. Are you looking at like doing an auto dialer automation solution where like it then pushes defaults automatically in Epic to a self-pay collections and hits that that work queue and then it, leveraging like an automatic auto dialer to call out to the patient about coordination of benefits where then they can push a button and it's like, oh, now I'm connecting you to a rep, a live rep to talk you through. But we haven't gone that far yet. Um, just simply, you know, we have resource constraints as well of, of you know, phone calls and we're trying to reduce those and, you know, just all that kind of stuff. What we yeah. are doing, exploring is if we do not get a response. And the nice thing about the MyChart message, you know if the patient reads it or not. Right, right. You know? So that's kind of a, an added bonus. And you can, you know, through all this activity, you can kind of report on it. So that's nice to see, you know, how, what, what steps were, you know, what actions are occurring. But what we are going to do is we re, we reping the payer. Excuse, I'm so sorry. After X amount of days, we're going to reping the patient. So we know that they haven't read it or responded. So we're going to ask them again for that information. Once it goes through, you know, all the days and the cycles and everything, then, you know, it's what what steps do we take from there? So I think, you know, we, we do reach out on high dollar cases to the patient to try to get them engaged and with that phone call. But we haven't gotten to the piece yet where, we've automated it fully through to that. I'm sure we'll get there eventually, but that's connecting various teams and departments and, um, but would be a, a great option for our, in the future. Cool. All right, Jen, I got a question for you now. Um, so with all the current work that you got going on at AHN, I know that you guys are exploring payer platforms. Um, can you share a little bit more about like the details on the project? What, what kind of what AHN's thinking about how they're going to initiate it and then leverage it, it, it current in current state, leverage it, and then it kind of maybe what they're thinking in the future to leverage payer platforms for. Yeah, payer platforms so buzzy right now, right? everyone's talking about it i know I, I my client too they're like can we do this i was like can we do it as a group versus five different locations <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so interesting enough for us um it kind of started off in the managed care space because um payers are starting to ask for um payer platform as part of contracting um and so we are in a situation with two payers on the same timeline that we are implementing before the end of the year. Um, and um, for those of you that aren't familiar with payer platform, um, it's basically where a payer um, purchases their own instance of Epic. So they in effect become like an Epic customer. Um, and so they use technology very similar to Care Everywhere. So how we would share information with um, another healthcare system so that the patient has, that, so that you have you know, continuity of care for the patient with Care Everywhere. 
it's very similar to that type of technology, but it's done between the healthcare system and the payer. And so there's many components of payer platform. What we are focusing on first is what they call clinical document exchange um, and ADT notifications. So the idea here is basically that um, if I, if the payer that is live with payer platform um, is my primary or secondary coverage, they are going to share a subset of my, for that visit, they're going to share a subset of my medical record, um, not the entire legal medical record, but a subset of it, um, kind of what you would share in a care everywhere situation um, with the payer for that visit. They also will notify the payer via what we call the ADT notifications when I'm admitted in an acute care setting. So the payer is going to know that I've been admitted to the hospital um, so that, you know, in the future, those coverages can be checked, you know, authorizations become easier, that kind of stuff. Um, so my biggest interest in this, so when we first started talking about it, we were a little bit hesitant on the benefit to the healthcare system. Um, so what a lot of people started off doing was sharing that kind of, what I said, the clinical document exchange information with payers helps the payers retrieve the information that they need today to do what I call a longitudinal medical record request. So for things like Medicare risk adjustment or HEDIS or quality, it helps them in that way which is great, great for the patient, great for the payer. Um, how does that benefit us, right? Like how does that benefit and reduce our administrative costs? And so the other piece of sharing that clinical information is in the case today where we receive, I'm gonna use the term letters very loosely. And when I say letter, I could be talking about emails with PDFs, something that's sent to Availity, our RCM, um, something that is sent to a payer's portal that we are expected to download ourselves, faxes, etc. When we receive those today for payment integrity or audit purposes, you know, that is a manual workflow for us with a huge administrative cost of releasing those records. And so the other piece that will be beneficial from a payer platform perspective is that in those cases today where those payers would be requesting that information um, from us, um, payer platform has functionality, they call it additional documentation request, where that piece can be automated as well. So we are looking at from one of the payers that we're implementing from a Medicare risk adjustment type of thing, we're talking 15,000 requests per year that we hope to eliminate from, I don't have all the numbers for the payment integrity audit yet, but from one particular payer for a six month period, there were a thousand medical record requests just in the clinic space. So not even talking facility. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is eliminate all of that type of manual work. And that will be a huge administrative cost savings for us. So we're talking, you know, our mail team, our HIM team, our third party vendor for release of information, saving costs on all those fronts. Yeah. It's interesting with payer platforms. Um, As I shared, my client is been approached by multiple players as well around implementation of it. And we're taking a little bit different of spin initially. We're looking at it from a um, continuation of care and um, a prior authorization request platform is what the payers are wanting to leverage it initially for. So, you know, going in and saying, okay, 
often requested. Now the payer goes out through payer platform and they auto pull the uh, clinical records associated to being able to approve it versus us having to upload that. And then once the patient's in-house, you know, instead of um, case management having and utilization review and management having to fax records every day and pull things and make phone calls, the payer is just able to go directly out into that platform, look at it, take whatever their current inpatient scoring is that we have in our platform as well to see that like, oh, yep, they're meeting the agreed upon score rate percentages and ratios. And here's that associated documentation that we need. So that's kind of how the, they're initi initiating it as well. What I I had the pleasure of talking with uh, one of the Epic BFs uh, yesterday, and I love where they're headed, where eventually it's even going to be, you know, processing the claims. And we're no longer, instead of like doing direct claims from Epic in, we're processing the claims through payer platform and leveraging it more like a tapestry type model and being able to have, instead of having to do you know, claim attachments or having to fax records or having to try to do all of that, just having them go directly out and pull what is needed. But like you, Jen, my concern is how do we isolate what those individual teams at the payers are able to access or leverage? I mean, I know at my prior organization, prior to joining Wilshire, we had several payers that had direct connect into Epic. So our expectation was they were pulling the, those records themselves. We gave them the full medical record access, but then at the same time, how do we know what they're pulling? And we had to create automation. We had to create bots essentially to go and like scan what are they actually grabbing out of the record and seeing. So, you know, that, that I think will be interesting to see is through payer platform, how can our compliance departments look at seeing what the payers are pulling? What can our revenue integrity departments go out and see what they're pulling as well so that we can start to determine and decipher, like, how do we do more denial of prevention? Are they getting too much information? You know, if I'm looking at like a TPL work comp case, yeah, we run a pregnancy test on every patient when they come in through the ED, if they're a female, right? But they're not entitled to know if it's positive or negative in those cases. What they're entitled to know is simply just, um, you know, what's associated with that accident. But we're doing it for how do we treat, how do we do, do the next course of step, but it, those records aren't theirs to know. So, you know, how do you ensure that they don't get that part of the clinical note or the lab test? Um, I, I think those are the part, parts that we're all still exploring with, you know, payer platform, it, it, at least what I'm seeing people still exploring. So. Is this whole lift for payer platform on like the the IT team as well? Like I know Jen, you mentioned earlier, like that your your first question is like, what's the lift on IT? I this sounds like a lot. Is am I so, understanding that? <laughs> here's here's my my take is that both the payer and in this case the vendor Epic will tell you that it's a four to six week project. What I will tell you is that. At most healthcare organizations, if the payer and Epic tell that to me, I'm tripling that amount of time in my head. And that's being generous. And it's because there's, when we're talking with the payer and we're talking with Epic, their concerns are not the same as our concerns. Our concerns are making sure we make the correct decisions so that we are not giving more information than is necessary for payment. Um, you know, we have a lot of privacy, HIM compliance people on our committee. We are dedicated to making sure that we are making the correct decisions and not giving, 
you know, way too much access and way too much information. And there are a lot of very technical decisions that need to be made. Um, there's a whole checklist. Um, and so it's, I would say the lift is not necessarily that high on the IT side, but the lift is behind the scenes of telling IT what to do. So IT is not going to make the decision about, you know, which um, which departments are we going to restrict from sending over? Like that's not IT's decision to make. Once we decide that on the operation side, IT can do that. It's not that big. So Epic and the payers are correct in saying like, if all the decisions are already made and you know exactly what you're going to do and you've read, you know, spent four hours reading all this documentation and all this stuff, then yes, the IT lift isn't that big, but there's a lot of prep work. So though we just actually kicked off our project with IT this month in September, we've been working on this project since May. Now, one thing to remember about Epic Payer Platform is that it is not one size fits all. Uh, the payers pick and choose which, you know, aspects of it they want to implement or work with you on. And so it's, you know, when people start talking about the implementation of it, it's like everybody's like all excited that, you know, it's going to streamline everything and it's going to be this wonderful product. And I'm not saying that it's not a great solution, but it's not the same for every payer and what they're focused in on and their benefits from it may not be the same as your organization's. So that's always something to think about, at least for in the current state, um, when you're looking at Epic Payer Platform. Well, and I think I think that's just it. I mean, I was talking with a payer yesterday and they're like, no, 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 we only want it for this prior auth portion. And I'm like, but that's not actually going to help our organization. Like right. what's going to help our organization if we could leverage it versus claim attachments. So speaking of claim attachments. And claim attachments always seem to be at the bottom of the payers. Right. List. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. Like, no, just send us the record. So it could like that claim can process for another 90 days and, you know, age out your AR. <laughs> <laughs> that's why people start throwing around ROIs on this. And it's like, whoa, whoa hold on. <laughs> yeah. We really think about that. So Jen, I know that as uh, speaking of claim attachments, I think that's also on your guys's horizon there at AHN and you've been tasked to help support with that implementation process too. So what are you guys doing? How many pairs are you guys trying to bite off at one, uh, one big bite? Or are you going small and uh, multiple little small uh, spoonfuls? So Shonda and I feel very strongly about claim attachment. <laughs> I'm very passionate. I can, we can, but can we extend the time that we're going to talk here today? <laughs> you but told us you had a hard long. stop. <laughs> long work in this space. So it's, uh, it's, yes, I'm very passionate about it being a no touch process because you can achieve that. Yeah. And so I think, you know, we found ourselves in a spot where when we started this year, our Epic Refuel project, um, our numbers for claim attachments looked decent. We were getting something out the door. Um, but when we were able to do a little bit of a deeper dive, we found that maybe what we were getting out the door wasn't necessarily what the payer was asking for, for that particular date of service in the PV world, for instance. So we started with kind of retooling our PV claim attachments. And that's where we're working on right now. And so again, you know, with my HIM hat on, you know, 
I would say that of all the pieces of functionality that I have worked on in Epic over my 20 years of working in Epic, I would say that claim attachments is one of the trickiest. Um, it is because PB claims and HIM release of information have literally never spoken together before. They don't know that each other exists. They are like, what is this team over here doing? Like that is not an integrated team. They don't typically work on projects together. And so blending those worlds of, um, you know, here's a PB claim edit, this payer needs an attachment. All right, let's automate this as much as possible, but then teaching those end users, okay, well, for instance, the date that a charge posts for pathology is typically five days or so after the date of service. So Epic isn't smart enough quite yet to be like, oh, it's the pathology charge that you're looking to send the attachment on. Let me look back five days and then grab that pathology result and meld them together. So, you know, we're working through all of that process of basically like, how do we teach those end users like who are used to having to go to chart review, manually print out, create a PDF, send it through mail, fax it, what have you. How do we teach them how to, okay, let's make it so easy that they can just jump into release of information, grab that info and send it electronically so that it goes straight to availability. And so what we're really focusing on in the PB world is um, workers comp and then auto. Um, and the idea is, is that once we get these reports right, you know, and my HIM hat on, right? I don't want, I don't want duplicate results. I don't want, you know, discontinued orders. I want them to be perfect and I want them to be short and I don't want them to be 17 pages, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so as we get each of these encounter types kind of fixed, the idea is, is that it will be easier to kind of go through each of our payers. And I think what Shonda is really excited about is the new functionality that we'll have um, an ability for electronic attachments. Are you also thinking that leveraging, I mean, from the perspective of claim attachments, I mean, I look at it in, in my funnel lens, right, of saying, hey, okay, so payer X, we know that at X number of dollars, they always need an itemized uh, statement. So how do I leverage that? But, you know, I also know we leverage our CDF rules within Epic to strip codes, do all of these things. So I, I that's the part that we're struggling with at looking at claim attachments. We know we strip we charge for it, but we strip we strip it at the claim and it rolls up into you know on an inpatient into the, the DRG or into the revenue code component. So that that's my other portion of like how are we going to tackle that you know manual stripping of certain information out of it as we're doing claim attachments and and getting that to automate and I that's what at least one of the locations I'm working with right now is struggling with is that stripping portion because they did finally get like, Hey, on these, the health plan was great. Like anything over $50,000, we're always going to ask for this in with this certain diagnosis type. So we can leverage that for claim attachments, but how do we remove the, th the noise, you know, that they don't, that they don't need in the parts that are not a standard clinical record that you can clean that out from the ROI perspective. We haven't really gone there with the HB uh, detailed claim bills yet as far. I mean, I know we send, I mean, we have bots today that send um, with medical records for some vendors that send the detailed bill. Um, and so um, I'm assuming we're sending just the whole detailed bill, but I, yeah, I don't have a lot of insight into that yet. Cool. Well, as we're looking to 
to wrap up here on today's episode, I got a, I got a question for us here. Just to think about, we, we've talked a lot about different automation actions and different projects that we're working on. What did that prioritization look like? Like what, where were you or who was part of that, that committee or that decision to be like, this is what we're working on first and second and third. And here's kind of our pool of projects to work on. Is that something that you all have gone through and thought about before? Or is it just like, as it comes up? Yeah, well, we need to get there. I don't think we're quite there yet. So, um, you know, collaboratively, we look at our projects and what, where can we automate and what can we do and, you know, which areas have the capacity right now to focus in on that. Um, but, you know, creating a prioritization, automation prioritization group um, is, you know, probably we're looking at that in our future. Uh, because, you know, to your point, you can't work on everything at once. And you don't want to work on something that has like a lesser ROI, right? So you really have to, um, you know, pay attention to those types of things. Right now, um, we are looking at it in terms of, you know, heavy, heavy, excuse me, heavy user touch or, you know, dollars associated with that, with that automation. So All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance. Claim Capital is a team of ex-EPIC staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. And we're back. All right, so we're just going into closing remarks here. And as um, we've kind of transitioned recently on the podcast, as we have a lot of early careerists and wanting to uh, share about what our industry is. I'm curious just for, for Shonda and Jen, just for the both of you, if you can leave our listeners with a major professional accomplishment that you're proud of, just as uh, obviously you all have a plethora of experience. I'm curious what, what you have in store for us. Something we've accomplished in the past or something that we're working on for the future? You can go Wherever either direction. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, Jen, I'm going to let you go first. I didn't, uh... <laughs> I got to think about that one for a minute. <laughs> I guess for me, not, not one specific accomplishment, but as a consultant, you know, I'm always very proud when I can 
work on a project for a customer that they've said, you know, we've gotten seven people in here and they've tried to do this project and no one's been able to do it. And, you know, like you've been able to accomplish it. And so I pride myself on being able to work on integrated projects that are, that are kind of tricky, that are, you know, involve several different teams. They involve operationalizing a process, um, working with training, doing what I call like workflow PR, you know, if the workflow may exist and work in Epic or whatever system, but unless all the users know about it, it's not worth anything to anyone. Right. And so I think that I pride myself on being able to work on projects like that um, and being able to be successful at them. So that's probably kind of what I pride myself on the most in my career. I think, um, I think what I would have to say is that I started in healthcare in an entry-level position. Um, in 2003, I started in a charge entry position, um, and I didn't know healthcare at all. I didn't go to school for healthcare. Um, and as, you know, as the years progressed, as I learned more, um, you know, I, I was promoted uh, along the way and learned more and more and more about revenue cycle. And now I'm kind of nerdy about it. But I think that having that experience coming in at the kind of the ground level and working your your way through, you you really, you know, get your hands on everything along the way. And I think that um, that has been so beneficial to me in my role t- today, you know, and I learned I learned how to, you know, I had to evolve as a leader um, and I had to learn as I went along. So I, I came in at the ground floor and and worked my way around. So um, I think that I take a lot of pride in that. Awesome. Well, thanks both for joining us and season two, episode 17, Automation and Action. Um, Jen, I know folks can probably reach out to you on our website, but for Shonda, is there a best way for any listener to reach out and connect with you? Um, yeah, you can, I have, I'm on LinkedIn, so, um, you can connect with me that way or, um, you know, via email, I would imagine. Your email shows on like your little, uh, face icon in Zoom for anybody who goes to our YouTube channel. (laughs) Or it's just a reason to go to the YouTube channel. (laughs) (laughs) Please listen to 45% of the show. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's it for us today, everybody. Uh, we will be back uh, with episode 18 in a couple weeks and talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.